0: Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Good morning. So great to see everybody. I hope your school year is off to a great start and that you had a, a fantastic summer. Can you believe it's been almost a month since I had the honor of teaching? And man, I just thought our teaching team did a phenomenal job in the month of July, whether it was Julia Geiger talking about how to disciple or how to be discipled, whether it was Amanda Burgos talking about having an undivided heart as we pursue Jesus in this next school year, or even Julie last week just talking about gathering people together as we grow. I thought they did a phenomenal job and, and one of the reasons that we do that is because we want to empower them to be able to use their gifts and talents and the other reason is I wanted a month off. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Actually, I've been hard at work because two weeks from today, we are kicking off a brand new series called Flourish, and the reason is that the definition of flourish means to grow in a vibrant way, and I feel like sometimes uh, I talk to a lot of people like, how's it going? And They use this word like, I'm surviving, and it feels like for a lot of people, we're just trying to make it to the end of the day, make it to the end of the week, and we're just surviving, but God has so much more than surviving for us. He wants us to to flourish, to grow, to experience that abundant life. And that abundant life doesn't mean that everything's always up and to the right, and your your health is good, and everything's perfect, but what it does mean is we're pursuing Jesus, and he's changing us. And so we're going to explore what that growth looks like for six weeks, and in addition to that, I have written daily devotionals for each day during those six weeks. We're going to give that to you completely for free. And so the idea is that on Sunday morning, we'll introduce a topic, and then all throughout the week, you're gonna have a chance to dive a little bit deeper and to reflect on it. And then the best part is, we've also created an entire small group curriculum around this series as well. And so if you join a life group, you'll have the opportunity to do that next week. Every time you gather together, you're gonna hear from somebody right here at Bridgepoint how they've taken a step to grow spiritually and how you can as well. I am so excited, never been more excited about a life group semester as I am this one. So that's all gonna kick off in two weeks. And so you'll hear more information about that. Um, but it gives me an opportunity here. Um, normally, uh, the, the first week in August, I do Vision Sunday. Um, but this year, I get to do Vision Sunday, part one. And the next week, I get to do Vision Sunday, part two. Uh, so I'll tell you next week, we're gonna talk about God's vision for our church specifically, what I think God is leading us to do in this next year. But before we dive into that, I wanted this week to just kind of take a step back and say, what, what is Jesus' plans and intentions For his church, right? If it really is his church, then what are his plans and intentions? And so I want to look at this morning one of only two times Jesus actually uses the word church. It's the first time he ever refers to his church, and it comes from Matthew chapter 16. We're going to dive in this morning, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, if you're like me, when I read verses like this, I'm like, okay, when Jesus went to some place, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? But the reality is that Matthew, when he records this, is very specific that Jesus went to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And if you remember, the Gospels, they were passed down orally for for generations, and then when they were finally written down, it wasn't like somebody got on their computer and typed up a Word document, and they had unlimited space. They had a piece of parchment. They, They couldn't include any extraneous details. So every detail that's included is important. And I say that because when you're reading the Bible, and there's a specific city named, you ought to do a little research so that we can figure out what actually was going on in that city at that time. Because for the original audience, for them to hear that Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi, that would have been shocking. Because when they heard that name, it had all sorts of cultural connotations. Uh, the same is true in our day. Like here, here, let's do a little audience participation this morning, all right? When I say New York City, what comes to mind? Big Apple, all right, what else? Broadway, Empire State Building, right, all these things. The City That Never Sleeps, you got Central Park and Times Square. All these images come to mind. Now, what if I said Las Vegas? Whoa, all right, that was... All right, you guys excited this morning, I guess. You got gambling, you got Sin City, you got the the Vegas Strip, like all of these things come to mind. And in the same way, when you heard Caesarea Philippi, immediately people will be like, what the heck is Jesus doing there, number one? And number two, why did he take his disciples there? Because his disciples, by the way, I don't know if you know this, the disciples weren't like middle-aged men in bathrobes. They were all, except for Peter, all of them were under the age of 20. So when you hear Jesus and his disciples, he's taking his youth group to Caesarea Philippi. So can you imagine if I was like, hey, uh, we're going to grab all the students. We're headed out to Vegas for spring break this year. It's like, what the heck are you doing? The students are excited about that. But... So what on earth was going on in this town? It actually has a a history, you can go all the way back to the beginning pages of the Bible, because Caesarea Philippi is at the, the base of a mountain called Mount Hermon. And the first time we encounter this mountain is in Genesis chapter six. So the first five chapters of Genesis is all about human rebellion against God. So Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, then you have their sons, Cain kills Abel, the whole thing spirals out of control. You get to Genesis chapter 6, and we hear of not just a human rebellion, but there's a spiritual rebellion. There are these spiritual beings that descend from uh, God's uh, court, and they come down, they sleep with women on earth. The women get pregnant and give birth to these giant demigods called Nephilim. And to be honest, that's part of the Bible we like to skip over because it's like, that's kind of weird. I don't understand that. But the reality is, when that was written, all of Israel's neighboring countries believed that their Kings and leaders were imbued with powers by demigods. And so this was the ancient way of saying, hey, your king might have powers from a demigod, but it's from a dark spiritual place. It is not a good thing. And that rebellion happens at Mount Hermon. Now, flash forward a couple hundred years, God's people finally enter into the land that he had promised them. And when they get there, they divvy it up based on the 12 different tribes of Israel. And this area was given to the tribe of Dan. And immediately they go up on Mount Hermon and they put up a golden calf and all of God's people who God just led them into the promised land, they start worshiping other gods in this golden calf. And so you have this history of like spiritual darkness over this area. Now, flash forward a few more hundred years. Anybody here ever heard of Alexander the Great? Some of you are afraid to raise your hand because you think it's a pop quiz. I'm not gonna call on you, it's okay. Alexander the Great is significant because he's a conqueror, but he's also Greek. So when he comes into this region and conquers it, he brings in all of this Greek influence, including Greek mythology. And this mountain became a place where people worshipped the Greek god Pan. So I actually have a picture here for you. Pan is half goat and half human. I think we got the picture we can throw up. There you go. I know what you're thinking, oh, he's cute. He reminds me of Tumness from Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. No, this is honestly like if you Google him, your accountability software is going to go off on your computer. It's like the only appropriate picture I could find um, because Pan was known for two things primarily. Uh, number one was his anger and his violence particularly towards the uh, women in relationships that he was with. And actually, the um, people who worshipped Pan um, believed that if he were to roar or to scream, he would induce a fear called panic or pandemonium. That's actually where we get those words. And so they would worship Pan so that he would go before them in battle and cause their enemies to be thrown into panic or pandemonium. Now, the other thing that Pan was known for is uh, love, or we might classify it as lust, and he was worshiped as a fertility god. Now, this is our first Sunday with our sixth graders in here, and we're so glad that they're here. So, we're going to give the family friendly version of how they would worship him. But they would take goats because he was half goat, and they would have these parties, and because he was a fertility god, they would do fertility things, and that is how they would worship Pan. And all of this happens at this mountain and actually the way they would worship Pan, they would uh, find these naturally occurring caves and there was a cave, I think we have a picture of the cave right here in the mountain. It's kind of hard to tell, this is a modern day picture so just imagine with me if you will, that cave used to be home of a giant spring that was so powerful and abundant that this was the start of the Jordan River. Now, in the 19th century, there was an earthquake that basically rerouted the whole spring. But the spring was so deep, historians said no one actually knew how deep it was. And so the people who worshipped Pan and all the other Greek gods, they believed that this was actually a tunnel to the underworld. And the underworld in Greek mythology is, is Hades. Are you guys familiar with that? So this cave actually became known as the Gate of Hades. And the way they understood the seasons to work is that they believed that um, every winter, all of the Greek gods and goddesses would go down through the gates of Hades into the underworld. And that's why things stopped growing. There was no life. And so in order to bring life back in the spring, they would have these big festivals. They would do all their fertility stuff. And they would take a goat. They would try to throw it down the spring. And if the goat sank, then they believed that the gods had accepted the sacrifice. They were going to come out and bring new life and if it didn 't, then it would kind of float down the river, and they would keep throwing goats in until one of them sank to the bottom. So this, this, all of this is going on right here in Caesarea Philippi. Now I want to fly you guys are like i didn 't come to church to learn about Pam. I came to learn about Jesus. give me five more minutes we 'll get there. So flash forward a few more hundred years. The Romans come in, they conquer this area. And Caesar Augustus is ruling at the time, and the empire was so big that he could not oversee all of it on his own. And so he would divvy it out to other kings. And he gave this region to a man named Herod the Great. And if that sounds familiar to you, it is the same Herod from the Christmas story. So in history, Herod is known for all of these architectural and engineering accomplishments, but he's also known as being someone who was um, not a good guy. He was very paranoid. He actually killed his favorite wife because he thought she was plotting against him. He killed some of his sons because he thought they were plotting against him, but he really was a big suck up to Caesar. So when he inherited this land, he actually built a temple to Caesar made out of marble, it was ornate. I mean, this was like, Caesar, thank you for all this land, we're gonna come here and worship you. Now, he did have a son named Philip, and when Philip turned 16, Herod gave him this entire city. I mean, I think some 16-year-olds are like, I would like a car, but sure, I will take a whole city if that's what you want to give me. And so Philip gets this city, and he also wants to suck up to Caesar, so he names the city Caesarea. It means Caesar's city, but his dad had already created another Caesarea, so he adds his name to the end of it, and it becomes known as Caesarea Philippi, and then shortly after that, we're not 100% sure exactly when, at the same place, they also erect a temple for Zeus, so I wanna show you this picture here. This is somewhat what it would have looked like when Jesus and his youth group roll up to Caesarea Philippi. On the left, that is the, the far left, that building is the temple to Caesar. And right behind it, if you can see, that's the gates of Hades. That's that big cave that they would uh, do their sacrifices in. The space in between those two buildings, that's where all of the pan worship would have occurred. The building on the right is the temple for Zeus, the Greek god Zeus. And then the two other buildings, it's an upper and lower portion. This is where they would do different things with goats. All right. So that, that's the family friendly version. Um, so this is the picture that you have. And I don't know if you can tell, but in the mountain, they have, it almost looks like windows carved out. They called them niches. And they would put uh, statues of Pan and different gods in these niches. And so this place, if you think about it, you have political worship, you have religious power, you have sexual influence, you have a whole bunch of stuff going on. They called this place the rock of the gods because even into the rock, all of these gods are worshiped here. And this is the place that Jesus takes his disciples. Now, I wanna show you one more picture and then then we're done with history, I promise. So this is a map of this region at the time. If you can see the, the sea up at the top, the Sea of Galilee, this is where Jesus is right before they head to Caesarea Philippi. Right after what we're about to read, he's gonna head way down south to Jerusalem. Do you guys see Jerusalem down there? So before he does that, he heads up to Caesarea Philippi. It's 25 to 30 miles from where he was. And the reason I point this out is because this was not some place Jesus happened to stop at on the way. He was very intentional to take his disciples to this place to ask them that question. Who do people say that I am, right? In a culture where there's political worship, where there's worship of other gods, where there's all sorts of sacrifices going on, there's a lot of things that I could be. Who do people say that I am? That's where we want to pick back up in verse 14. It says, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So I can imagine they're like, well, Jesus, there's, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about you. Some say that you're John the Baptist. See, John had ticked off Herod and got his head cut off, and for, John was uh, confronting Herod on all of the bad stuff he was doing, and they're like, Jesus, I mean, you are not afraid to confront people, and so some people think you're John the Baptist, come back to life. You know, some people think you're Elijah because we believe that Elijah actually going to come right before the Messiah, and he's going to kind of make way and prep for God to bring his kingdom here on earth. Some people even say you're like Jeremiah because you both called religious and political powers to account for their deeds, and, and you're doing the same thing. And so there's a lot of different opinions on who Jesus is, but then he asked them a very pointed question in verse 15. He says, but you, he asked them. Who do you say that I am? And I love this because I think Jesus asked them the first question to give them an opportunity to take the initiative and saying, Jesus, a lot of people say a lot of different things. Here's what we think. But I think they take that opportunity to say, well, here's what this person says and that person says. And and, and Jesus says, no, all of us have to answer that question. Who do we think that Jesus is? And the temptation is gonna be for you to say, well, when Matt gets up on Sunday mornings, here's what he says about Jesus. Or I read this book, and here's what it said about Jesus. And I listened to this podcast, and here's how they discuss Jesus. And my fear is that for too many of us, you live your relationship with Jesus vicariously through somebody else. Right? Like you don't grow spiritually because your wife gets up and reads her Bible every day. You don't actually grow closer to him because your friends post the, the verse of the day on Instagram. You know, we, we don't get closer to Jesus because we see other people serving. We have to account, who do we actually say that Jesus is. Now, at this point, you know, if you've read the Bible, you know there's one disciple who's not afraid to speak his mind. And probably because he's the oldest of all of them, he's probably around 20 years old. But in verse 16, it says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I imagine Peter's like, I got this, guys. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Now, this is a shocking statement for Peter to make, because to say that Jesus was the Messiah could have cost him everything. This is not even a good analogy, but it's the closest one that I could come up with. I want you to imagine you go home this afternoon and you decide, you know what? I'm just ready to burn my whole life to the ground. And so you get on social media. What is something that you could say that would be so foul or vile that you would lose your job? Your family members would call to check to see if you're okay. Your friends block you like they don't want anything to do with you. All right, now don't think any more else about what you would post if that was the case. But the idea is that Peter knows that if he says Jesus is the Messiah, he will get canceled. Like it will cost him relationships with his family. It could cost him an opportunity to to further his career and his financial goals. Like it will come at a great sacrifice to him But he stands up and he says, you are the Messiah. You're not Jeremiah. You're not Elijah who's going to announce him. We believe you have come to bring God's kingdom. You've come to bring heaven to earth. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and you are the son of the living God, which I think is a subtle dig to all those temples that were behind him. Because in Greek mythology, did you know there's only one Greek God that ever died? And it was the God Pan. In fact, this is like, I don't know if it's coincidence or what, but right around the time of Jesus' ministry, there was a a ship bringing some imports into harbor, and for whatever reason, every single crew member on board reported hearing an audible voice that said, tell everyone that Pan is dead. And so they make it into port, and all of them say, we all heard this voice say, Pan is dead. And Caesar actually issued a commission to investigate whether or not Pan was actually dead. And the results came back inconclusive, I'm sure you can imagine. But it's this idea that, that uh, Peter's like, listen, Caesar's, this temple to Caesar, Caesar's come and go. Pan, he's dead. You know, Zeus, we, we don't even think he has any real power, but you You are the son of the living God, the God who is powerful, the God who is over everything. Jesus, you're bringing heaven to earth, and you are the son of the one who still lives and reigns today. It is a powerful, powerful statement. And how does Jesus reply? Verse 17, Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. So Peter gives this great declaration, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're so blessed, Simon. Simon. Because the only way you could have known this is that God revealed this to you. Which, by the way, I think is a good reminder for us. If we actually want to know who Jesus is, God will reveal that to us. And it also goes, when we have those friends that we really want them to know who Jesus is, you're not going to argue them into a relationship with Jesus. You're not going to debate them on social media into a relationship with Jesus. Only God can reveal that to them. So so number one, we can take the pressure off from feeling like we have to have every answer to every question because God will take care of that. But the other thing it's empowering, because when we have people in our life that we want them to have a relationship with Jesus, we can take that to God. We can pray because he's ultimately the one who opens people's minds and their eyes to see who he is. And he says, Simon, you're now Peter. And on this rock, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of Hades won't overcome it. It's just like beautiful play on words here. Um, The Bible was written in two languages, primarily, the Old Testament Hebrew, the New Testament Greek but Jesus didn't speak Greek. He actually spoke Aramaic. And the same word for Peter and the same word for rock, like it's the same in Aramaic. The closest I could find is that in the French language, Pierre is a name and it also Pierre means rock. So it's like he's saying you are Pierre and on this Pierre, I will build my church. And so there, there there's this whole big debate then. Okay, so, so who's the rock? Like like Our Catholic friends would say, well, Peter is the rock. Like Just that I'm going to build my church on you. We know that Peter became a prominent figure in the early church. And, and Jesus said, I'm giving you the keys, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will have been loosed. And they believe that when Peter died, he passed that authority to somebody else. And through the generations, all that authority gets passed down to where you get to the pope today. That's a big oversimplification, but I had like 30 seconds to explain that. But that's like our Catholic brothers and sisters, that's what they believe. Now, Protestants would look at this and say, well, two chapters later, Jesus says that whole binding and loosing thing to all the disciples. So actually the rock isn't Peter himself, but the confession that he made that that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And whoever believes that and follows Jesus will then have this power of binding and loosing, which interestingly enough, it doesn't say what you bind will be bound. It said what you bind will have been bound. In other words, you'll start to come into alignment with all of my plans. Like, if you follow me, I'm going to bring you into alignment with everything you need to do to be the people I've created you to be. And so we could go a whole different direction with that. But there's a growing number of scholars who look at this and realize, where is Jesus standing? He's standing at the rock of the gods. And he's standing by the gates of Hades. And the only time Jesus uses that phrase is when he's standing next to the gates of Hades. And so I'm just throwing this out there, my two cents. I kind of wonder if what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you're right. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. I've come to bring God's kingdom. I've come to bring heaven to earth. And, and listen, this rock right here, this place, this wretched hive of scum and villainy for all my Star Wars fans, this rock of the gods, this is the rock, this is the place where I will build my church and even the gates of Hades. Even the worship to these false gods will not overcome what I'm about to do. See, Jesus uses that word church, which isn't a religious term. It was political. It literally means the ones who are called out. And Jesus is saying, imagine what he's doing here. He's standing in front of some of the most powerful, magnificent structures. You have political power, religious power, financial power, all of this going on. And he looks at a group of homeless teenagers. And he says, you're my called out ones, you're my church. And right here in the midst of all this, I'll build my church. And none of this is gonna stand the test of time which is actually here even more beautiful, guess what happened in 2020? They go to this location, an Israeli excavation team, and they're digging out this temple to Pan, and you know what they found? Sometime about one or two centuries after Jesus stood there, the whole temple to Pan was converted to one of the first Christian churches. Literally on that rock, Jesus built his church. How cool is that? Am I the only Bible nerd here today? I'm like, that's awesome. But it's kind of frustrating sometimes. Because Jesus makes this great, grand, magnificent statement. And sometimes we look around and we're like, that's not really my experience with what church is. Because I'm willing to bet there's a lot of people who are here today, maybe every person here today, you've been burned by someone at church before. I think the phrase people use today is church hurt. You've been wounded. You've, Listen, nobody shows up to church because things are going well and nobody leaves church because things are going well for them, Right? And I wonder if we look around sometimes and we say, man, but the church is like tied up in all this politics stuff. And the church is just as guilty of sexual abuse as, as the people who worship Pan. And the church is no different from the rest of the world. And listen, I understand and I can, I can relate to a lot of those statements and sentiments. But the reality is what Jesus is actually building, I think some of um, the uh, uh, scandals that have come to light is Jesus kind of just pruning his church and saying, hey, all the areas where you've looked like the world, we're just gonna cut that off. We're just gonna get rid of that. And we're gonna see who the real church is. The real church is of people who follow Jesus. And I you know that sounds so rudimentary, but the reality is that's hard. The, the way of Jesus is a simple way, but it's a hard way because the way of Jesus is you don't need power, influence. You don't need any kind of political structure. You don't need that. What you need to do, turn the other cheek. What you need to do, love your enemies instead of blast them online. What you need to do, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. It's simple. It's simple but it's not easy. And what it requires is that in the face of all that the world says, this is what real power looks like. Instead, we look to Jesus and we trust that what Jesus said is true, even when the world tells us it's not. And to say, I'm gonna follow the way of Jesus. Now, right after this, we don't have time to to get into it right now, but I just wanna summarize it. Right after this, they start to head to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, guys, when we get there, I'm gonna be handed over and they're gonna kill me. And Peter says, No, Jesus, did you not hear what I just said? You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the Living God. You just said your church was going to be built and, and the gates of Hades aren't going to overcome it. You're not going to die. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You don't have to be a theologian to no, know if Jesus calls you Satan, you're not on the right track. But the reason is because for Peter, he was still looking at things from the way of the world. No, Jesus, we need we need some military power so we can overthrow the Romans. You, you got you to get more followers on social media. You got to have more money and we got to have a capital campaign. We got to get you into office. Like this is how it's going to happen, Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you, you still don't get it. You kind of got it, but you still don't get it. And then the natural question is, okay, but if Jesus is going to die, what does that mean for his followers? And this is where in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus makes his famous statement. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself take up his cross, and follow me. Following Jesus really looks like letting go of all the worldly things that we think are gonna make a difference in our life. Like that, that, that promotion that we really want, like our financial goals, our hopes and our dreams. Listen, those may not be bad, but they also might not be from Jesus. And if we're gonna follow him, we have to be willing to die. We have to be willing to lay it all down. It's funny because I think sometimes as pastors, we really want uh, people to follow Jesus. And so we just like, hey, follow Jesus. Everything's going to be great. You know, Jesus was like a really bad salesman. He's like, you want to follow me? You're going to have to die. And it's like, all right, dude, the barrier of entry needs to be low, right? He said, no, you have to give everything up. And really, I think Jesus' vision for his church today, I think, and I'll speak for myself, I think for a lot of us, We think that, okay, what we really need is we need to get the right people in office and the right people in the Supreme Court, and we need to pass the right laws, and we just need bigger churches and bigger buildings and bigger budgets, and then that is how we're going to accomplish God's mission. And I wonder if he was here today and said, listen, set all that aside. Will you actually die to yourself and follow me? Are there areas in our life that we need to lay down because we want that more than we want the way of Jesus? Now, I do want to throw it open to Q&A. If you're new at Bridgepoint, we do Q&A every single week. You can text in your questions. If anybody wants to raise their hand, you can ask a question. And it's not because the answers are great, but I just think questions are great. And in fact, some of Jesus' most famous teaching comes in response to people's questions. So we should never feel like if I go to church, I'm not allowed to ask questions. So I just want to, does anybody want to raise their hand? Anybody have a question? All the introverts in the room are like, don't look at me. All right, we got one in the back. Right, so the question, I've been told I have to repeat it on the microphone so everybody can hear it. He said the significance of him changing from Simon to Peter, um, he's doing a play on words, which likely is a way for people to remember the point he's making years later. Um, So in the Bible, they don't have, you can't do like, when they were writing, they didn't have like bold letters or italics or anything like that. So they would like repeat things or you would do play on words, like seven things the Lord detests and six of them he finds vile, like all that stuff. They're just ways people can remember. I think Jesus was saying, hey, you're because right before it says, you're Simon Peter, he says, you're Peter, but on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And, and yes, Peter would become a rock and a foundational member of the early church, but I think he's really just trying to underscore his point. That's my opinion. I could be wrong now. So great question. Anybody else have a question? This is my favorite part of Sunday morning. All right, that's fine. If you've ever been in a life group, I'm fine with awkward silences, but I find most people are not, so I will just continue on. Um, I really do think next week we're gonna talk about like what does all this mean for us as a church and what this next year, this next school year is gonna look like for us. But I really think when we read this story, the question we need to wrestle with is what ways am I looking more like the world and what things do I need to give up to become more like Jesus? Because if we follow him, he'll make us look more like him. But I I know in my life, there's areas that I have to surrender. There's things that I have to let go of. And by the way, this is not like a one, I'm going to pray a prayer at church and everything's going to be great. Daily, making the decision to say, not my will, but yours be done. And so what we're going to do in just a minute, we're going to continue like we do every single Sunday. We're just going to have a time of communion. There's four communion stations throughout the room. We also have two prayer stations up front. If you want to write a prayer to God, you can put it in the jar. Like, that's just between you and God. You can light a candle, because throughout church history, that's represented. I'm sending a prayer to God. But we're going to have a time to spend with Jesus. Because at the end of the day, I don't want you to come here because the music was good. I want you to come here to hear a sermon. I hope that you're here because you wanna meet with Jesus because a moment with him will change everything. My sermons aren't life-changing, but an encounter with Jesus is. And when you spend your time with him, if you'll just say this simple but powerful prayer, Jesus, what are you asking me to lay down so that I can follow you? And if you pray that prayer, I think he'll be faithful to answer. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. If we do that, we will not only become the people he wants us to become, but we'll be the kind of church that's gonna be built on the rock in the midst of all the power of the world, and that's gonna be the church that stands the test of time. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we are so thankful that you are building your church. And we don't have to convince people, and we don't have to manipulate people, we don't have to do any of that. You'll open their eyes. You will build your church. And that when we look around and it feels like the powers are at work against us, that we know they don't have the final word. And that when we look back one day, we'll see that it's your church that's the only thing still standing. So would you show us the areas of our life that we need to surrender, that we need to lay down, and give us the strength to do so. Because Jesus, we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call live groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.